Well, this morning, I want to invite you to turn in God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Um, as you guys know, we've been walking through 1 Timothy, and then we took some time to just spend in prayer as a church and to begin to prepare our hearts for what has taken place over the last couple of weeks. Um, we had the chance, um, we celebrated it last week, but to be able to be part of hosting a lot of, of missional work in our city um, through some efforts uh, that were called uh, crossover where there was a lot of door-to-door evangelism, um, even here in the Lakeview area. But then also there was a lot of service projects and a lot of uh, compassion ministry and evangelism that took place through an event called um, Serve Tour. And so we were the hub for that. And so you used this facility for God's glory to be able to, to do hundreds of, of ministry projects all over our city. And so thank you for doing all those things. But now we return back to God's word. And, and, and there, this is one of those, those aspects where I see God's sovereignty and his perfect timing in a passage because some of the things that took place even this week with the Southern Baptist Convention, and we are a Southern Baptist church, as First Baptist New Orleans, um, may have you asking a new set of questions, uh, may have you thinking about, you know, well, gosh, well, what does this mean? What, 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 is, what do we believe as a church? You know, those sort of things. And so I hope that as we spend time beginning this week and then walking through chapter two and into chapter three, that from God's word, some of these things will become clear to you and to me as we walk through these things together. Um, One of our core convictions as a church is that for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture fed. And so we always are wanting to turn into the word to study and look at the word. And what does the word say? This is God's intention and his good design for his people as a church. And so we want that. Whatever that leads us into, even if that's difficult, um, even if that's misunderstood or mischaracterized, we're going to have to be okay with some of those tension points as long as we are leaning in to the best of our ability into obedience to God's word and and doing so with humility. And so today we turn back to his word, but I think it's important for us to go back a little bit to remember the context. Um, Sometimes what can happen even in discussions like the one that we've been having as a Southern Baptist convention just about about the role of women in ministry is we can begin to almost treat the Bible like an encyclopedia, that it's just kind of a series of articles on different topics. And you can just kind of turn and use a concordance, you know, or an index in the back of the book just to find topics throughout the Bible. And that it's just all kind of encyclopedic entries on different things. But that's not really a healthy way to read the Bible. Um, a lot of times when we turn to a key verse in a passage, like we're gonna be getting to here in 1 Timothy, It's in the context of a much bigger conversation that's going on. And while you can pull out that sound bite, that one verse, to be able to maybe get clarity on a specific theological issue, it's a lot of time much healthier to say, well, what are the verses around it saying? Uh, What's the full context to this passage? Is it really about the topic that I'm talking about? Or is it about something else? And so that's what we're going to be looking at um, over these next few weeks together. Now, today we're only going to be looking at one verse, and it's because it's specifically addressed to men. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But we need to step back into chapter one just for a moment because it's been a few weeks for us to get the real picture of the context of where we are. 
Beginning in verse one, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior in Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. That's real important for us to understand the full context of what's going on in this letter is there is false teaching that is abounding in the church in Ephesus that Timothy, young Timothy, is having to contend with. He's having to counter false teaching of various kinds. And so that's important for us to know that Paul is trying in a very intentional way to speak about doctrine, what we believe to be able to set things straight through this letter. So that's really key for us as we step into this to know that Paul is countering what may be false teaching or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The other aspect of what's going on here is distraction. Uh, So there's false teaching coming directly at you, but then there's distraction. You're getting kind of pulled off in these other directions over what he says are myths and endless genealogies. So whether it's, 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 you know, it, 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 this exact kind of false teaching that's coming right at him or distraction, these things are the context to which Paul writes to young Timothy, to young Timothy. But then look, picking up in verse five. Now the goal of our instruction is love. That's a strong reminder that we need in this moment, because if anything, a lot of the conversations that have been happening don't feel so loving. And don't feel so in, in tune with maybe who Jesus is and his heart of grace and truth and love. And it can be like, man, I just feel like there's a disconnect here and I'm trying to put these things together. So then when we turn over to a passage like this, we're like, man, is, is Paul missing it? Is Paul not being very loving here? He says explicitly that the goal of all of this instruction, everything that he teaches, everything that he's writing here, the goal of it is love. But not just a, just a, 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 a theoretical love, a, an abstract love. Look what he says, that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he says, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. And then he goes on to communicate what, why the law exists. And then he moves into verse 12 and he says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a a persecutor and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul is is wanting to remind them that this is a grace message, that that Paul is one who received grace upon grace, not because he deserved it, not because he was such a religious man, but only by the grace of God has he been saved. And that's because God is a gracious God who delights to save sinners. So this is orientation to the passage as well, is that there is none who is high and lifted up, who is not in need of the full measure of God's grace. So that should promote in us a humility. There ought to be a humility that characterizes every believer. And Paul continues on 
with verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Notice that good conscience coming back again and again. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. This seems pretty intense. He's calling names at this point, but he's only doing so because they have departed from the truth. We, we don't know an exact on which tenet, but they're departing from the truth and he's hoping that they will be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, to come back into the truth. So that's the intention, that's the point. And then he moves into instruction. First of all, then chapter two, verse one, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And then we come to verse eight. I want you to feel the movement. He's established why he's writing. He's, he's admitted, hey, I, and I am only one saved by grace. And Timothy, I want you to stand firm, fight the good fight, have a good conscience, all these things. It's so first of all, pray, 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 pray. Let there be prayers and petitions and thanksgivings and prayers made for everyone, for, for kings and all those in high positions so that we can lead quiet lives in all dignity. I mean, he's so, so get the feel that he's moving to. And then he moves in specifically in verse eight to this. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we receive this specific verse today. The movement of his word to this point, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. God, I pray that your word would be fulfilled in us today. May we, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, say to you, may it be to us according to your word. May that be our heart today, that in faith, to pursue this sort of, of existence as the body where anger and dispute have no home. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. What we're gonna do this morning is we're just gonna unpack verse eight and look at it. Now you'll notice that verse nine, it says also the women. And so he's gonna speak specifically to the women and his, his instruction to and about women continues from verse nine to 15. And so pray for me as I prepare for preaching a message next week, specifically on those verses. Verses that have a lot of discussion specifically for the conversations that we find ourselves in today. And, but, but we can't separate it from verse nine as if verse nine didn't exist. Paul is not addressing the entire body, but for a moment, he's speaking specifically to men and then he's speaking specifically to women. Now, Paul addresses men in a particular way. Now, does this mean that he doesn't care if women pray or not? Does it mean that the women are free to pray with holy hands lifted up in anger and in argument? Not at all. No, certainly not. Paul addresses men in this passage because he understood the inclination of men 
to allow their anger to flare and arguments to ensue that were a distraction to the worship of God that they were to be living in and the love for one another that they were to demonstrate as proof that they were his disciples. Now today, we do not need to feel any need to apologize to our culture for the Bible. We don't need to apologize for what Paul writes because we know that these are not just the words of Paul, but this is the word of God. This is God speaking to his creation, those redeemed by the blood of his son for their flourishing. He desires our lives to be as fruitful and full of human flourishing as is humanly possible. Females and males, young and old, black and white. He desires all of humanity to flourish in right relationship with him in accordance with his word. Now we may have to work to accurately understand what Paul wrote by better understanding the first century context, what's going on in Ephesus, what's specific here that may help us to understand this text even better, and then appropriating the meaning of the text for us today. But the second God's word starts to speak to men and to women, especially in ways that seem maybe contrary to our culture, we begin to squirm in our chairs. We begin to fumble with our words as indictments, sometimes masked as questions, begin to fly our way. But brothers and sisters, for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be scripture-fed. If we're going to thrive, then we must at every point lean into the word, not away from it. We must resolve to obey it no matter the cultural expense, knowing that his word always, when rightly obeyed, results in human flourishing. Now, some of you right now, out of respect, are not chiming back at me saying, oh yeah, Chad? Didn't Southern Baptists use the Bible to defend and propagate chattel slavery? Didn't they use the Bible to say that what they were doing to black people from Africa as slaves was good and God-ordained? I mean, Chad, you're saying that the Bible results in human flourishing, but haven't even Southern Baptists used it as a weapon against humanity? Didn't they quote Paul's words about masters and slaves as a defense of what they were doing as being ordained by God and pleasing to him? Yes, you're correct. They were absolutely wrong. They were not wrong just because we today can see more clearly backwards a hundred years. They were wrong because they rejected Genesis 1 and 2, in which God created mankind, male and female, in his image. In his likeness, he created them. We celebrate Juneteenth tomorrow, which is a national celebration of June 19th, 1865, the day that the news of freedom was proclaimed to slaves in Galveston, Texas, over two and a half years after it had first been proclaimed by President Lincoln in the Emancipation Proclamation. But history shows in painful colors of blood, prison stripes, and red lines, to name but a few, that injustice remained and became part of the American experience for African Americans. Discrimination, 
racial stereotyping and denial that even that racism even exists today come not from scripture. They come not from scripture in obedience to the scriptures, but from the sort of thinking that Paul is calling us in this passage to resist. Instead, Paul calls us together, every man, regardless of skin color, age, background, economic status, educational attainment, music preference, political affiliation, and anything else that could separate us, to come together as one new man in Christ to pray. Have people throughout history distorted the Bible in order to propagate injustice and promote human oppression? Yes, and we all run the risk of doing the same. Some in this room today may be concerned that Southern Baptists did it again this week concerning our understanding of the pastorate being limited to biblically qualified men. May we carefully consider the word striving to read it in its context, to discuss it in community, and to obey it in the power of the Holy Spirit with a good conscience. I humbly ask for your prayers again as I prepare to preach verses 9 through 15 next Sunday. I want to be faithful to the Word. I want to lead with wisdom and a good conscience. But more than that, and more than what I want, the Lord wants us to be faithful to his word and desires to lead us with all wisdom through the eternal truth that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he speaks, first of all, to men. And this is good because Paul knows that the men in the church in this context were leading out in division. Rather than leading in humility, rather than leading in service, as his word is going to call for in just a moment in chapter 3, both of the overseers and among deacons, they were leading out in anger. Rather than, than raising the fist and saying, we're together, they were raising the fist and saying, I'm ready to go. That's what they were doing in the body. And Paul addresses it head on. He knows that this is an issue. And so he says, therefore, I want men in every place to pray. Now, there's two aspects to prayer that as we then open up God's word and look, we see that we are called to pray personally and also to pray together. Jesus in his teaching in Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 8 says this, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have the reward. But when you pray, this is singular, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble like Gentiles since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. The father is inviting us to come to him in prayer. And, and, and specifically, men, I want to speak to you this morning about your personal prayer life. Are you and am I cultivating a time alone with God where we are bowing before him in prayer, where we are worshiping him personally, where we're not having to say a bunch of words because the Father already knows what we need. But are we praying at a minimum for our family, 
Are we praying for if we're married for our wife? If we have children, are we praying for our children by name? Are we praying for those that we work with? Are we praying for our neighbors? The question was posed this week in a sermon that I heard that if right now every person that we were praying for by name were to come to Christ, how many people would come to Christ? Would it be this incredible avalanche of salvation or would it be just one little drop in the bucket because we're not praying for anyone to come to Christ? It was an indictment that I think we all need to receive that we need to be praying personally. But here in this context, in this passage, Paul is writing for the church. He's writing to the church. He's wanting men, plural, to come together and to pray. Even though we see Jesus as our example, after dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray well into the night. He was there alone as recorded in Matthew chapter 14, 23. There were also times when he would pray with his disciples, where he would bring them into the garden. And even if there was the space of a little distance, he was calling them to pray with him and to be with the father before him. And so when we pray together, we want to be in accordance with God's word found in Jude verses 20 and 21, where God's word says, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. I'm convinced as your pastor that prayerlessness can, continues to be one of the number one issues that we face today. That as we go through our lives, that we more and more distance ourselves from dependent prayer on God, and maybe even more acutely sometimes in Southern Baptist churches, that we enjoy the order of a worship service, but sometimes resist the unordered time of just spending time in prayer with God. And so my hope is that in the coming year that we will more and more have times of corporate worship. And even today, just to let you know, all of the, the men in this room, you will be encouraged and invited to come to these steps to spend time in prayer at the end of this sermon. Why? Because God speaks to us. Therefore, I want men, the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. As we go on in this passage, we see that it is God's desire that we will pray personally as Jesus instructed and modeled for us, but then also pray together corporately. But we have to ask ourselves, does this mean that it's not okay for men and women to pray together? This is an example of how sometimes well-intentioned effort to be very obedient to the letter of the law, to the letter of what is written, if you will, that we sometimes say, well, he doesn't say to pray together, so that means you can't. You can't pray together. Men can't pray with women, women can't pray with men, but is that what the text says? No, it's not what the text says. And that's what we have to always resist is the temptation that some of us say, well, it, it doesn't say this, so I'm gonna go ahead and fill in the gap. I, I'm gonna put in things into the Bible and say, this is what God says. We need to know that that's exactly how the Pharisees worked, that they had a high regard for God's word, but in order to protect God's word, they began to encircle it with more rules that you couldn't break. And then because that one layer wasn't quite enough, they'd, they'd encircle it with a, another ring of rules that you couldn't break. And it kept building and building and building so that there was even things that you couldn't, you know, 
pick up or you couldn't walk a certain number of steps or you'd be breaking the Sabbath or all of these things, these rules upon rules upon rules that they had built rather than trusting that that we could go no higher than his word, that his word was already perfect, that the standard had been established. And if we would just live in it, that would be enough. And so what if brothers and sisters, if men in this room just took seriously the call to pray, they just said, okay, I, I will pray and I'm gonna become more conscious of my anger and resist the arguing. We wouldn't have to have an argument about whether men and women can pray together. If we would just do what's written, that would produce the fruit. And I anticipate that it would be just like it was in the early church, where we don't see distinguishment in any kind of way, except for the the people of God gathering together and humbling themselves and praying and being filled with the Holy Spirit and going out and boldly proclaiming Christ as Lord where they were. That's my hope for us, that this will be a house of prayer for all nations to come and experience his presence. Anger. As Paul goes on, he says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. And you say, well, does that mean that literally when we pray, we have to hold up our hands? Well, what we understand is this, is that our hands are only made holy by the blood of Jesus. Like these hands now are to be used for building up one another, for serving one another. These hands, these two hands, I mean, hold up your hands in front of you just for a moment. These hands no longer belong to you. When Jesus Christ purchased you with his own blood, he got your hands. Your hands now belong to him and they can either be used to tear down things and to fight others or to build up and to lift up and to praise his holy name. Get the picture. Paul is saying you can use these for a lot of things. People work with their hands. In fact, he calls us to work with our hands over and over again in his writings. But here in this place, he's saying, but you better first remember these hands don't belong to you. They're holy. They're set apart. They belong to him. So lift them up to him. Remind yourself, even physically, these belong to you. May everything that I do bring glory to your name. I belong to you, my hands belong to you. And then he specifically leans in and says, without anger or argument, anger. Here's what we need to know, anger is not the problem. It's what we do in our anger that's the issue. Anger is not the issue, it's what we do in our anger that is the issue. You say, well, Chad, I think anger's the issue. I mean, because Paul says it multiple times, like put away anger, put away anger, put away anger. And he always couples it usually with wrath or vengeance or things like that. Anger does seem to be the issue. How many of you can control if you get angry? Anybody? You're just in perfect control over your emotions at all times. That when someone cuts you off, you're like, I don't get angry. No anger here. Or when your child says, no, you don't get angry perfectly calm and collected. No, so many times we have trouble controlling our anger, but it's an emotion that, listen, that Jesus himself, same word is recorded as having experienced. And so if anger in itself is just this sinful feeling that's inside of us, then we'd have to say that Jesus sinned. And yet we know that the writer of Hebrews captures it well. He, he, he was tempted in every way, but without sin. He never sinned. 
You see, it's recorded in Mark chapter three, Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man there who had a shriveled hand, get the picture, he's gone to church and there's someone there with a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they watched him closely to see whether he would heal, heal on the Sabbath. They didn't care about that man with the shriveled hand one bit. They just wanted to see, is Jesus gonna break the rules today? Remember those rules around rules? They just wanted to see, is he gonna break the rules today? And he told the man, Jesus told the man, stand before us. And then he said to him, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Everyone knew the answer. They were silent. And then listen, after looking around at them with anger, I mean, Jesus had a righteous anger because he knew that they knew that it was right and good. And yet they did not love this man. They did not want to see good done on God's holy day. No, they were content for this man to remain in his state. But notice what Jesus does with his anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. I don't get grieved over the driver in front of me when they cut me off. I don't say, man, I just, I feel bad for him. I really do. You know, that's not my, you know, with my child, when they say, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't say, oh, I'm just so sad that you're in this, this space, you know, like this, you know, this thought moment, you know, no, I get, I rise up in anger. I get more angry in these things that like, you know, that set me off, that Jesus in being tempted with the anger, the, 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 this human experience of, of this emotion, anger, he then experiences grief at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. He kept loving. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. I mean, think about it. They're, just, they're so consumed with this that they want to kill Jesus because he healed a withered hand on the Sabbath at church. I mean, that's the hardness of heart. That's what anger produces in us is that desire to kill and to plot and to argue and to fight, but not Jesus. Jesus was distinct in this way. You see, Paul writes, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. He writes in Colossians 3, 8, but now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. He writes again, or James writes in James 1, verses 19 to 20, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You see, when I'm at the bottom of a huge cliff and I look up at that, at that huge cliff, that cliff itself is not dangerous. In fact, it, it, in some ways, it just is what it is. It's when I stand on the, the edge of the cliff that suddenly it becomes dangerous. And that, in many ways, is what anger is. It's standing on the edge of the cliff, and we are inclined to swing out in our anger. We are inclined to speak in our anger words that we can't take back. I love the illustration where someone squirts an entire tube of toothpaste on a plate and then gives it to a child and says, now, can you put it back? And the answer is no. We all know that once toothpaste comes out of the tube, it's out forever. It's, no, it's never going back in. And that's how our words are. Once they're out, you may take down that post, but it still was posted. You may delete the tweet, but 
Everybody that read it, read it. You may speak the words and then come back and say, I'm sorry I said it, but they were spoken. Brothers and sisters, we are inclined to sin in our anger. And that's why anger is so dangerous. That's why it needs to be dealt with. And you say, well, Chad, thanks for bringing to the surface the problem. What do I do? You know, many times it's just simply the acknowledgement that you are angry that begins the process of a conversation to be able to deal with it. So many people are content just to act in their anger. I'm guilty. Listen, I'm standing before you as, as, as one who's guilty. My kids and my wife, they know when I'm angry. Even if I don't say a word, they can just feel it coming off of me. Dad, are you, are you upset about something? Why? I, I, I don't know, you know? It's just the, the sudden jerks of the steering wheel or, you know, you're picking up everything a little bit more, you know, quickly and decisively and all that. I, I don't know. Everyone knows that I'm angry. But you know what? It's when I stop just for a moment and saying, you know, I'm, I'm feeling frustrated because, and I begin to say it, I can just feel my blood pressure start to come down. And then I begin to be mindful in that moment of, of what I've just been, I'm, I'm sorry guys, yeah, I, I, can see, I can see what I was doing there and I apologize for that. Dad's just a little bit on edge because of whatever. Listen, stuff comes up, right? Th things happen. You might right now be angry because of things that took place even this week as you read about it in the news or you went to the, to the Southern Baptist Convention and were there. You're like, I, you know, this has me angry. I encourage you, let's talk about it. Let's find time. Let's have a cup of coffee. I would much rather that. I'd much rather hear about what you're feeling and in the life of the church, as we go through different passages that will, will continue to bring up things and say, man, this one, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this. So Chad, I don't understand, you know, maybe the direction you're going. Let's have that cup of coffee. Let's have that cup of tea. Let's spend time together. Let's talk and doing it with one another as well. Let's not be those who rise up like this, but who rise up with our hands to say, hey, can, can we come talk? I'd rather talk. I'm feeling this way. And then to move into relationship with one another. And when we do, it avoids the arguments that are stated here. Notice Paul ends with this. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Now, the specific word used here in some ways means reasoning. You know, so like it is God's word calling us here to, to be non-thinkers. Well, some people will say, yeah, we're not supposed to think, we're just supposed to believe, you know, and that kind of stuff. That's not what this is talking about. This is not calling us to just some sort of a, a blind belief where we don't think anymore. We kind of check our brains at the door and we come into the church. No, no, Christianity is a very thoughtful religion. It, it, it's, it's, it's how life works. In fact, we, we come into the very presence of God in his word and we behold the one who made our minds, who gives us the faculty even to have a complete thought. And so it's not at odds with thoughtfulness, but what's being spoken of here specifically is a thinking that really comes from a pretty dark place inside of us. That these sort of arguments, they come from kind of a, a place that pushes you toward doubt. Kind of like go back all the way to the garden where, where Satan tempts Eve and he says, you know, did, did God really say? 
It's that sort of reasoning. Did God really say that you would die the day that you touched this fruit? And some scholars are careful to note that that's, that's part of what the nature of that temptation was, that, that it, that wasn't what God says. It was, it was when you eat of it, not when you touch it. And so when she touched it and didn't die, it's like, well, things are working out. I mean, so you have all of these thoughts kind of surrounding the nature of temptation, but specifically this, this temptation to doubt, this temptation to have a, a thought stream that takes you away from the word of God is what Paul is talking about. You see, the, the thought line, the exact word that he uses here is found in a few places, and, and it really comes into three categories of arguments that you and I are to avoid that we see kind of developed in Scripture. The first is this, what I would call guesses. We're not to argue over what would be just guesses at things. Romans 14, verse 1, welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue, that's the word, about disputed matters about disputed matters. You say, well, Ch Chad, isn't that what just happened? Well, let's look at the context of Romans chapter 14. What is Paul talking about in this place? What does he talk about? Well, he gives us two examples. The first is this, what we can eat. He says, some people say you can only eat vegetables. Now, where did that develop? You know, like what, what was the thought process there? Well, there's some even to this day that say, well, that's, that's Genesis one and two. Adam and Eve weren't eating the animals. They were coexisting with the animals. And they were eating just, just the plants. And so that's really good for us. And listen, a lot of us would do better, right? To eat more fruits and vegetables. Okay, so I mean like, so we're like, yeah, okay. But some were insisting you can only eat vegetables. And they may have even been doing it from a biblical position. But others were saying, yeah, but didn't Peter have a vision of a sheep being lowered down out of heaven in Acts chapter 10? And, and God saying, go kill and eat? I mean, did God not mean go kill and eat when he told Peter this? And so you have these two things where it's like, man, I thought, I thought Jesus declared all foods clean. I thought that Peter had the vision. What gives on that? And Paul's saying, you don't need to argue about those sort of disputed matters. Somebody wants to eat only vegetables because they feel like that's how they're going to Let them eat only vegetables. If someone wants to eat a filet mignon, let them eat it. You know, like, let them do that. Don't, don't look down on one another. And then there was the matter about, well, what about meat that's been sacrificed to idols? That's being in discuss, you know, being part of the discussion as well. And so you have all of this going on. But Paul is saying that that's a disputed matter. He doesn't come down decisively on it. He doesn't write clearly about you must only eat vegetables or you must only eat meat. He doesn't do that. And so it becomes disputed. Another one is which day is most holy? Is it the, is it the, the Lord's day, the, the, the day that we call you know, Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection and so that's the most holy day? Or is it still the Sabbath as it was on the Jewish calendar and the sun sets on Friday evening until the sun sets on Saturday evening? Is that the most holy day? And Paul says, there's some that say that every day is holy now. It's all set apart to God. And so we don't need to, to, just, to argue, to get in these, these futile disputes over guesses over guesses. And brothers and sisters, we still sometimes get into some of our hottest disputes over guesses, over things that are not clearly written in the scriptures. And so we need to be mindful of that every time that we gather, even in a, in a Bible study group, that sometimes there may be a couple of ways of looking at the Bible. And that is not having conviction. That's just being true with integrity to what's written in the text. So we need to be mindful of that. 
So arguments to avoid guesses. Second, arguments to avoid greatness. This same word is used in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, where it says, an argument started among them, that is the disciples, about who was the greatest among them. I mean, what a, what a disaster, right? I mean, like, you know, if I'm a disciple, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe that one made it in the Bible. You know, like, of all the things, like, we, we talked about a lot. We had a lot of experiences. Like, that one made it, you know, it's like, how embarrassing. They are fighting over who's the greatest. Who's the, I, I'm the greatest. I, I'm the greatest. You know, like, I, you, you just look at that. Brothers and sisters, we still jockey for positions. We still, hey, I, I want to be the chair. We don't say I want to be the greatest anymore. We just want the position of greatness. And we, somehow we've delineated it. We, we've said, well, that's not the same thing. No, it's the same thing. It's the position. Remember the, the, uh, the, the, the sons of thunder? One wanted to sit at the right hand, one at the left hand. They wanted the seats. They wanted to be in the seats of authority and position, and we have to constantly be on guard against that, that we want to be seen like the hypocrites. We want to be acknowledged as having the seat of honor, and so we all, we all need to be on guard against arguments about greatness. And then thirdly, we need to avoid arguments that really come from grumbling. Paul writes in Philippians, do everything without grumbling and arguing. You know, a lot of times that can be the, the ground out of which arguments grow, is that kind of grumbling. That, you know, here's how you know if you're grumbling, the conversation stops based on who walks in the room. Just a little litmus test. You know, you're, you're talking or whatever, and then, hey, here's comes so-and-so, you know, okay. And then you, you change the subject. A lot of times, listen, and, I, and I, that's self-indictment. That can be what grumbling is. It's these water cooler conversations. It's kind of this conversation here, conversation here, versus just going to one another in love and having the hard conversation. It's tough. It's hard to have that conversation, that direct communication, but it is what is best, and it is what God's Word is calling us to. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. So what do we do with a passage like this? We pray. We pray. And we resist the temptation to center our anger and to argue over disputed matters, to argue over who's the greatest, and to argue from the ground that really is grumbling. In these moments, what I want to encourage you with is for every person in this room. You say, well, Chad, you've only been talking to the men. The passage speaks to us all. Paul just knew that men, in a real way, deal with anger a lot more. I know that we have several licensed counselors in here, and I think that they would affirm that a lot of times when men come to a session for the first time, that a lot of times it's anger. Anger is one of the big issues that they've been dealing with. And, and all that comes from it and what they're doing in their anger. Brothers and sisters, let us together come to the Lord to spend time with him today, 
Today, just in accordance with the text, I'm gonna invite for the men in the room to be able to leave their seat in just a moment and to come and just gather together around here. I encourage you to place your arm over another man just as a band of brothers this morning, just to spend time in prayer. This is not to exclude women. This is just to lean into the relationship that we have with one another as brothers in Christ. You know, and sometimes it's just proximity. It's being right beside another man and hearing him pray. It sometimes unites you with the group. It makes you feel like, man, I'm actually part of something bigger than just me. And that there are other men in this room that are moving in the same direction toward Christ with me. And that encourages us. That's what we should want. For our teenagers in the room, I wanna invite you, the teenage boys in this room, and for our our sons, I wanna invite you to join. Maybe come down um, with a man that's sitting with you, whether that's dad or an uncle or a friend, to be able to come and also pray. We want our sons in this room to be found walking in the Lord. And there's no better posture than to begin what it looks like to follow the Lord than humbly in prayer. So let's pray. Father, I pray that in this moment that we would be willing to humble ourselves before you. I pray for every person in this room that we would pray, Father, with holy hands lifted up. Again, just surrendering our hands to you to be used for good and godly purposes and to do so without anger or arguing. Man, I invite you now to respond by coming and spending time in prayer together.